This is a day where I feel like I always need an expert on Mother's Day, and I never feel really comfortable just, you know, me doing the message. So I've invited the expert of all experts to come join me, my wife and the mother of our three children. Would you please welcome Danita Parker? Thank you. I, uh, I need a little help. Yes, you do. <laughs> you need a lot of help. I'm actually. sure that's true. Yeah. I didn't expect that. All right, good. Uh, let's just jump right into this. We're going to talk today about remembering and why that's so valuable. So let me ask you this question. Do you remember this day? I do. That is Erica Whitney Parker, June 26, 1989. So we've not had children for five years, and Erica has... It's never been boring with Erica since. Let's no. put it that way. No. All right? <laughs> She's in the room right She's now. Room. Yeah. Do you remember this day? This is Ethan Brantley Parker. This was February 10th, 1991. Ethan has improved our prayer life tremendously. <laughs> he has such a sense of adventure. Yes. Do you remember this day? And this was May 1st, 1996. There's little Emily. We called her the cherry on top. Look at Eric and Ethan just staring at her. Isn't that cute? I like your hairdo too, you like Danita. That? That's cool. Yeah. Look at look at your. You're dear. looking good. <laughs> so, who is this angel right here? This is Callie Elizabeth. She made us grandparents on September 19th, 2018, and our lives have never been the same. Right? It's been exciting. <laughs> it's been exciting. You, you call that a reality check? Tell us how that was a game changer for you. Yeah, I think it really was a reality check because it, it caused me to stop and think about what are the words of my life? What um, remembrances are my children going to have of me? What memories of the words that I've spoken, the words of my life, am I leaving for them? And so I just really thought about that and thought, you know, I need to, I need to stop and camp out on that a little bit. You've had some great people in front of you with legacy. Tell us a little bit about that. I have. My, my mom has been a, an incredible role model for me, and she's continuing to build this legacy that she's leaving for us. So I, I'm so um, indebted to her. And I've had two amazing grandmothers as well. But, you know, I've never really gotten that much information about my great-grandmother. Never research that very much. But I tell you, I was home about a month ago visiting my mom and dad, and I came upon these two books in their library, and I thought, you know, I'm going to dig a little bit and find out what I can about my great-grandmother. And so in doing that, um, I came upon this picture, and this is Amos Riley Rogers. This is my great-grandfather, and he was into politics. He was an educator, and he was also part of the railroad postal service, and he was married to this lady, my great-grandmother, Mary Melissa Rogers, and she was the mother of seven children, and they lived like in northern Indiana on the Michigan line, and he wrote some really beautiful words about her. I wanted to read this to you. It is praise enough to say that she filled completely with the measure of ideal womanhood, believing that there can be no better religion than a cheerful and self-sacrificing devotion to family and friends, and no truer worship than a pious contemplation of the million blessings which daily fall from the omnipotent. And I thought, that was so poetic. I kind of wish you'd write that about me, but <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure those words are not going to come out of your I'll mouth. I'll work on it. I'll You're going to work, work on, on that. Okay. okay. 
But I think that the course of her, um, her legacy kind of took a turn when she became pregnant with her eighth child. So I continue to read, and this is what, this is what I read. In August 1903, tragedy struck the family with the death of Melissa Mary. She must have become desperate at the prospect of another child and took matters into her own hands, since the death certificate gives the cause of her death as septa peritonitis from a self-induced abortion. The funeral was very sad with all the children standing around crying for their mother. And I thought, well, I'm just going to close the book on that. that was, that's just a, such a sad ending, such a tragic ending to her life. And so it caused me to, to really stop and question what was going on in her mind. How did this lady of faith become so despondent and so discouraged and lose hope? Did she have memories of how God had helped her with all seven children up to that point? Did anybody remind her of God's faithfulness in her life? And she left behind seven children who needed their mom, one of whom was my grandfather. And, and I just thought that was, it was just really a sad, sad story. And then reality struck me. It's like the words of my life and the words of every woman in this room. Um, these words may not be heard about or with the world around us, but I tell you, they will be heard by posterity, and that's the generations that follow. It's kind of like a time capsule that's been buried in my backyard. And in the course of time, I think that my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren perhaps are going to dig and discover what the words of my life are. And so that it's a powerful thought to think of, it, of how incredibly important it is that the words that come out of our lives and what words we display in our lives. So you came home from this trip and you began to think about what kind of a legacy do you want to leave? And you mm-hmm. said, I don't want to leave a financial, I don't want to leave a social. No, it really not, has nothing to do with um, a financial or a recreational or social legacy. I'm talking about a valuable legacy one that it has significance. Yeah. yeah like, so, so when you look throughout the Bible, who do you think did it right? Do you see any role models that you would like to emulate? Yeah, I'm so encouraged when I read about Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel. And I know you guys are probably all familiar with that story with Hannah and her son um, Samuel. But, you know, Hannah went through a really challenging time in her life. And and she would go up to the temple year after year, and she would pour out her heart. Actually, it says it, she poured out her soul to the Lord. And in the course of time, God answered her. And I think that's so important for us to, to think about that, is that in the course of time, it didn't happen as soon as she prayed that first year. But in the course of time, God answered her, and she was allowed to conceive and give birth to a son. And Hannah decided to turn this son back over to the Lord and to Eli, the priest in the temple, to raise in the ways of the Lord. But what's interesting, Kurt, is that Eli, the priest, had two sons of his own. And this is the way they are described in 1 Samuel. It said, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. When I read that, I thought, okay, where was Eli's wife? Where, Where was the mom of these sons? What were the words of her life? What was she speaking in regard to the faithfulness that God had shown to the Israelites and all the miracles that he'd worked for them? Mm. Did she remember to tell her sons about this? 
And then if you read on a couple more chapters in 1 Samuel, you come to the story of when Samuel has grown up and he himself has sons. And this is what it says. It says, but his sons, Samuel's sons, did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. And I thought, okay, now how could Samuel repeat Eli's folly? How does this happen? How does one generation not learn from its predecessors? Is there neglect? And, and I started questioning again, where was Samuel's wife? So what were the words coming out of her mouth? What, what was she displaying? What was she speaking to her sons? I wonder if she remembered to tell them that they had a grandmother who had gone to the temple year after year and prayed and prayed, and God had been faithful and answered her at just the right time and had given her a son. I wonder if she remembered to tell them that because that son was their grandfather. But somehow, I tend to believe something was forgotten there. So about a month ago, as I mentioned, she comes home from this trip, and then she talks about this, and I thought, I've never thought about that. I've never, ever given thought to what in the world happened to Eli's wife. How did she, the Bible doesn't mention her, nor does it really talk a lot about Samuel's uh, wife. And so it's a really good question. Where were these moms during all this? So your point, and she wrote this message, and she's a much better writer than I am, But your point was, even though not everybody likes to look back, it's so important to be able to look back at how God worked in you. Because, I mean, really, do you think you and I are the kind of people that like to look back? That's really not our personalities. We are people who love to look forward. And I I believe with all my heart that even as we sing that fullness song that we do often here at church that the fullness is coming in our lives and and the in the next half we're going to experience and bear more fruit for him than we have in our first half so to me we like to look ahead but Kurt I do know that it's so important for us to remember and I think he wants us to look in the rearview mirror just enough to recall those times when he's been faithful to us mm-hmm. and proven himself to us that's what we pass down you found this incredible Charles Spurgeon quote. Um, share, this, share the quote with us. I did. This is powerful. What he has done once is a prophecy of what he intends to do again. Whatever God has done is to be looked upon as a precedent. So, Kurt, when he calls us to have this biblical remembering, remembrance in our lives, I think the reason is because he doesn't want us to transport us back to the past, but he wants to prepare us, he wants to equip us, he wants to encourage us for the future and Mm. what lies ahead. Mm. So what we're trying to do this morning is communicate the value of remembering what God has done. And in Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's a story about that very thing. And in Joshua 3 and 4, the Israelites have been in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're going to cross over, they're going to cross the Jordan River. But what makes it so interesting is the Jordan River is at flood stage, and you and I cannot cross this river at flood stage. Yet, there's about three million Israelites that are asked to cross the river. And so what God says, he said, the priests will now carry the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is the presence of God. And so when the presence of God that's on the shoulders of the priests 
touches the edges of the water, the waters will stop. And then these priests are to carry the ark into the middle of this river. And what takes place then is three million Israelites cross on dry ground. But he asks them to take a stone out of the middle of the river and go put it on the bank. Pile up this group, there's one from each tribe, so there's going to be 12 massive stones. And every time you and your children see these stones, you remember. Now, this isn't what you're to remember. This is what they were to remember. But because they remember this, it inspires us to be able to remember our own stories. And so what are our stories of how God's worked? Those are the stories that we tell our friends, our family, our children. So let's look at this story kind of quickly in Joshua 3 and 4. And it's really about stones of remembrance. Here we go. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. And every time you see the Ark of the Covenant, that's the presence of God. That's the presence of God. So the presence of God now is going to step into the Jordan River. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zareth, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. Well, all the Israelites passed by until the whole nation, about three million people, About three million people are crossing the Jordan on dry ground. This is an amazing story. Until until they completely crossed. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, And put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe. And he said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites. In other words, twelve stones, one guy from each tribe. To serve as a sign among you. In the future, in the future... When your children ask you, what do these stones mean, you tell them. You tell them what they mean. And that's the application for all of us in this room this morning. We tell our children, our family, our friends, our neighbors, we tell them our salvation story. We tell them how our prayers were answered. We tell them how God showed up in our lives. We tell them how this wasn't going well, but we prayed for this, and look what God did. This is a God story. You tell them your God story. You tell them over and over and over again, and see, the children then begin to instinctively trust the nature and the heart of God more than anything or anybody else. And that's the objective, that the children will trust the heart and the nature of God. You tell them. You tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. 
So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who had carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, there's two purposes of this. One is an immediate, and one is a long range. And the immediate purpose there was to help them realize if God delivered me here, he can deliver me tomorrow. Because they're getting ready to go into the land, and the land is filled with enemies And these whole miracle stories are going to have to happen over and over and over again. This wasn't going to be the end of the need for God to supernaturally intercede. This is just the beginning of the party. But there's a long-range objective. And the long-range is us. The long-range in that story would be thousands of years from then to us today on this very day. And if God worked miraculously there, he can work miraculously here. If God worked miraculously in their life, he can work miraculously in your life. And that's the objective. And so the whole goal then of us remembering our salvation story and our provision story and our healing story and our help story and how God just did this and God did this and God did this. And we tell our children until finally our children just, well, it's just natural to trust God. It's just natural to trust the the heart and soul and the nature of God. It becomes more natural to trust God than anybody or or anything else. So let me wrap this up with verse 24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So why is it so important for us to remember? Well, I think it's simple, Kurt, if we think of it like this. Let's read this. One of faith's most devastating enemies is forgetfulness. And one of faith's most powerful allies is to remember. And I'd like us all to read that together. It says, one of faith's Faith's most most devastating devastating enemies enemies is forgetfulness. forgetfulness. And one of faith's most powerful allies is to remember. So we make sure that we mark those moments in our lives and we preserve those times and we establish monuments and memorials in our life to revisit with our children. It's so important when we consider leaving these, this legacy. We talked this week about the most popular song of the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. It's a hymn and it was written by a slave trader. The most popular hymn sung the last 200 years is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. And John Newton was the guy who wrote it at the very end of his life. And he was a bad man, wicked, evil. Bought slaves, sold slaves, did things with slaves that we're not going to talk about at church. He was not a good man. But he had a mother for seven years. She died of tuberculosis about the time he was eight. And for seven years, his Puritan mother, as she's described, poured gospel, scripture, truth, hope, faith into John Newton. It's an amazing story. So that at the, at the two-thirds of his life, where it really counted, he, he remembered the stories that his mother would tell. He remembered her faith, and he gave his life to Christ at the end. And, and, and he wrote literally a whole bunch of hymns. The most famous one, 
uh, is amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, the point this morning is your stories, your stones of remembrance. And we wanted to bring our dining room table on stage this morning, and that'd be a little cumbersome perhaps, and have the family come out and share with you some of the things that we do. And, and then Emily, you know, suggested that maybe, you know, since she's got a baby and this is four times, why don't we videotape this? So we're, we're going to invite you into our home. And the goal is not for you to do what we do or, or what we're doing. It's just to plant seeds. It's to give you ideas of how you can now have these stones of remembrance so that, again, everybody wins who are around you. So we want to welcome you. Please come into our dining room. Welcome to our dining room. I know a lot of families don't use their dining room. We actually use this room all the time, perhaps much to the chagrin of our kids, because I remember when you were a little bit younger, you said, Dad, this takes three hours, and I loved our three-hour dinners that we would have in here. And this really became a table of remembrance. We would talk, remember, share, catch up. We're going to remember the stories that God has impressed upon us by making this a table of remembrance versus a table of criticism. It's really easy to be critical and critique things and talk about people, but we really tried to make this just a table where we mutually encourage each other. So when you remember your God story, and when you tell your God story, everybody wins. Because when you tell your story, it bolsters your faith, but then everybody else in the room also wins. They hear your victory, they know they can have a victory. But I really think the biggest winner of all around a table like this are, are the children. The children just grow up instinctively trusting the heart and nature and character of God. So we don't have literal stones like out of Joshua chapter 4 out of the Jordan River, but we do have our own pieces that relate to those stones. And one of those is we would talk about the special person. We would go around the room and talk about it, but it really gave glory to God because God's working in the person and the rest of us would recognize how God was at work. So Erica, tell us about the plate, the special person. Maybe start with the history of this. Sure. Well, the special person plate started in 2004, so about 15 years ago. Um, we started this, and um, my mom came up with the idea for Ethan, Emily, and I to go to a paint-your-own-pottery piece store and paint this plate. So how it would work is um, if it was your birthday or a special occasion or maybe sometimes just because if you're having a hard day, she would pull the plate out, and you'd use that plate for dinner, and then once dinner was over, we would all go around the table and share um, something uplifting to that person. So why they are special or what you loved about them or a fruit of the spirit that you saw in their life or how God had been working. And um, this was just really impactful because words matter and you remember what people say to you. Um, so this started first just in our intermediate family, but it quickly spread to other significant people in our lives and became more of a large group thing occasionally. And I remember um, looking back when I was little that 
sometimes those larger gatherings made me a little bit uncomfortable as a kid having to share remember like why people were special but looking back that was such a great growth opportunity um, it got me out of my comfort zone and it just really um, made me participate in the act of encouragement which was such a great positive thing i was definitely thrown into the special person with the family you know on my first birthday you know even but um but it was refreshing to me because i had never grown up with something like that so seeing how intentional you guys were with it you know in a time where most people are just critical it's like that's what you focus on it's not like most people will just come up to you and say a kind word or a, you know what they're thinking about you or something that you've done for them that they appreciated or there's just so many different things like that can come from this that can really lift you up if you're being told it as well as you know it refreshes you as a person when you're refreshing somebody else so um, you know I've got a lot from this and this is something we're definitely gonna take with us you know thanks to you guys to with our family when we start so that's great Another one of those stones that we talk about uh, really is fasting. I know we're eating tonight, but, but fasting is, again, one of those things that we're asking God to do something great, and then we remember what he did, and we keep telling that story year after year after year. Tell us your experience with fasting and maybe some stories. Yeah. Uh, growing up, fasting was, I knew about it. Uh, but I didn't really practice it until the first churchwide fast uh, a few years ago. And I really started learning about what fasting is. And when you dig to the root of what fasting means, it's humbling yourself before God, asking Him for breakthrough, asking Him for miracles because you can't do it yourself. And when you get down to that level and you look to God to fill, you open this door for breakthrough that you that you can't explain, like other than this is a spiritual breakthrough. And it reminds me of the verse in Matthew where Jesus says, or Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who hunger and thirst for you know, bread and wine or, or whatever. It's being hungry and thirsty for righteousness, not for what you can provide for yourself, only what he can provide for you. And it was an amazing concept. And once you wrap your head around that, we had some pretty unbelievable things happen in our own lives with fasting. And I'll just share one from a couple weeks ago. We were praying and we were fasting for unexpected funds and more specifically to get checks in the mail. And literally the day after we prayed, we got a check in the mail. And we started praying more and we got another check in the mail. When we got one, we didn't stop. We kept praying for more. We wanted God to, get, to give us more. Why would we stop when the prayer is answered? Why would you not keep asking for more? And I think that's a big part of the fasting journey is don't stop. Keep fasting. It's, it, why stop asking for breakthrough? You're always going to want it. And I think the, the second biggest lesson that I learned was remembering what he's done in previous fasts or previous times where we've, we've prayed for things and, and they've been answered or maybe they haven't been answered. So when we write on the, on the whiteboard at the beginning of every year when, the, you know, when we do the fast, we go back to the year before and we look and we, and we go, okay, we, well, we prayed for this or this was a breakthrough. This was like a miracle that happened. And we remember what God's done that year and we, we take pictures of it and keep track of it on our phones for you know, the year and just watch. And, and, and if something hasn't happened, we, we fast again. We keep going. 
and and we, we don't stop. Yeah, a couple different stories. I think fasting has been really important in our marriage and with parenting because I feel like God's answered some really big prayers through fasting. One thing I can remember, I was going off to college. It was in 2015 and Andrew and I had been introduced and I just was asking God to show me if if it was from him and I wanted clarity on that. And I remember I did a two week fast and the day that I stopped fast, fasting, he contacted me. And so I knew that it was from God. The second thing, um, we just fasted last year for um, during the 21 day fast with our church family that God would either grow us or grow our family. And two weeks into the fast, we found out that we were pregnant with Callie. I think so. you did both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ethan. Big things happen around this table, and you come with big dreams and big ideas. And we've all been inspired and encouraged by the scriptures that you share, the theological themes that you come to. I'm supposed to be the theologian, but you come to the table as the, the household resident theologian. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you bring to the table. I think it's been cool just growing up around the table together. We something that was instilled from such a year early age that you guys placed value on was, was God's word. And to us, it became something that was almost kind of like something we didn't look forward to, to be honest, because we had to read a proverb before we ate a, uh, ate a meal. Um, we read the proverb of the day, pick, a, pick our favorite verse, and we're like, starving, can we eat? Um, <clears throat> but That was kind of cruel. Was that your idea? <laughs> Okay, but I, I think just in that began this like culture that when we gather around the table, we want to discuss God's word. And I, I heard this thing recently. This guy was talking about um, how God's word is like a lamp to our feet, and I've heard that that a million times. He says, "Well, why is it a lamp? You know, why isn't it not like a flashlight?" He says, "You know, a flashlight you can see ten yards down the road, but a lamp you can only see a couple feet in front of you." And he said, the more you elevate God's word in your life, the, the clearer the next step is. And so I think that's so cool that that's been the center of this, our discussion. Now, as we gather and we eat, it's also that visual image that just as this is physical food for our physical bodies, God's word is spiritual food. And so we come around the Lord's table. He's like, do this in remembrance of me. And so I think it's so cool that when we come around and we eat, we really talk about the spiritual food. What we're really longing for is His Word. And so it's so important to come around the table and discuss what God's teaching us in His Word.